Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we got spoiled this morning. I, I love seeing men lead worship. There's something very biblical about that, like the uh, Levites. Uh, so that means we're going to have to do that more often. I'm just, I'm just saying what everyone else is thinking. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, good morning. And uh, I want to begin a little differently than you might think of in a, Christ- in a Christmas morning. Um, one of the greatest radio hosts of, of, of all time, I may even be dating myself talking about the radio, but uh, is uh, Paul Harvey. I, I grew up listening to him with, with, with my dad. Uh, but in 1965, Paul Harvey had a very famous radio address titled, If I Were the Devil. He begins with the first line, If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I, would, I want to engulf the whole world in darkness. If you haven't heard that, the entire thing, I encourage you to listen. Uh, But there's an idea there, because Satan, the father of lies, always desires to shroud the truth in darkness. Always desires to take what is light and pure, and what God does, and distort it, and confuse it. And even what what should be visible in plain sight, he desires to hide. But on the other hand, the gospel is the complete contrary. God, the bringer of good news and all good things, the father of lights, shines his light in the midst of darkness. The gospel is a message of light shining into darkness. I'll give you a couple examples. John 1, 1 through 5. I'm sure you're familiar with both of these. John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Matthew 4, 15 through 17. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Uh, this is quoting from Isaiah 9 that we read earlier. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. What is that light? The beginning of Jesus' ministry, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The life and death, the ministry of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the kingdom of God, that is the light that shines in the darkness. And that light will shine and no one will put it out. But if I were the devil, I would wrap this glorious gift of light coming into the world into shiny commercialism and empty tradition. I would put it in such a beautiful box that everyone would just be amazed at the box and never open it. course we don't need a holiday to proclaim that our God took on flesh and came to save us we as Jesse said we do that every week but we certainly need a very big holiday to hide it and so I want us to remember this morning that this is not shiny commercialism this is not empty tradition this is proclaiming Emmanuel God in the flesh The incarnation of the Son of God, and we will not hide it this morning. And so with that, 
Uh, I love how providentially this lines up. Uh, our series in the book of Ruth lands in this passage, which parallels the, the, uh, the, the narrative of the incarnation in Matthew and Luke. We're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew and Luke. So know where they are. Uh, keep your fingers there. We're going to go back and forth. But I want us to see this morning the uh, mystery, the majesty, the beauty of human life and how God shines light in the darkness through the birth of a son is present in our text and in the incarnation narrative. And we're going to draw on those connections this morning. Um, because what we're going to see in Ruth and Boaz draw a lot of parallels to a, another couple and the birth of their son. Because as we looked at last week in Ruth chapter 4, uh, 1 through 12, Remember verse 12, when the women of the town uh, give their, their blessing to Boaz and his new bride. Verse 12, they say, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. That offspring is now here in verse 13. Just like the head-crushing offspring from Genesis 3.15 has come. There is a promise of a seed to come, who while the serpent would nip at his heel, he would bruise, he would crush his head. That promise offspring came through this promise offspring. And both of those are on full display in our text. It's like the Griswold house, you can't miss it. So let's begin. I'm just going to look at verses 13 through 17 in Ruth chapter 4 this morning. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They call him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning uh, to praise your holy name. Blessed be our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has not left us without a Redeemer. He has not left us widows and orphans and sojourners like Ruth. Our God loves his people. He seeks and saves the lost. He brings the sheep back to the pen. He hems them in. He holds them in his mighty right hand. He is our rock. He is our refuge. He is our redeemer. Lord, you are that God and there is no other. There are many false gods. There are many false gospels that claim good news, but they only lead to death. Yet there is good news. Good news that the light, the world is the light of men. And the darkness shall not overcome it. That light is our Savior, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. He is why we gather. He is why we're here. It is in his name we stand. And it is his name that we want everyone to see this day 
in every day forward until the day that he returns. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's look at verse 13. Very matter of fact, very straight to the point. But these little bullet points in the Hebrew and in the English, they are pregnant with meaning. All puns intended. They are about to burst. There is so much in here. And so this also is the consummation of the book, all puns intended. Where these two worthy people, noble in the Hebrew, Hiel, both Boaz and Ruth. These two humans come together, but it is God's purpose to bring forth a child. Sound familiar? Before we go any further, I don't want you to miss this. We've been emphasizing it all along, and you may have noticed it if you read, read ahead, and I encourage you to. If you don't regularly read ahead, please do. But if you notice, since being in Bethlehem, this is the first time she's simply called Ruth. Every other time, she is called Ruth the Moabite. Every other time, we're reminded she doesn't belong here. She's a foreigner. She has no inheritance in this land. But when Boaz takes her as his wife, she's now Ruth. Uh, Daniel Bach, one of the commentators, brings up the escalation of the terms. Back in chapter 2, verse, verse 10, she falls on her face. She bows to the ground and says to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She begins her time in Bethlehem as an outcast, a foreigner. And even in her next address, she uh, presents herself as the lowest servant, the lowest form of servant. Verse 13, then she says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and you have spoken kindly to your servant, the lowest of the low, though I am not one of your servants. When he agrees to cover her with her wings, she escalates it a little bit more. Presuming in chapter 3, verse 9, he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are our, our redeemer. This word for servant here is for, for maidservant. This is not one who is far from, from the master, but attends to the master's needs in an intimate way. Now we see here in chapter 4, from foreigner to low servant to maidservant to now wife. This is a beautiful growth in uh, building of the anticipation in the book. And so before we go any further, I want all of us to hold on to this redemption detail. Because when you are redeemed, you are no longer defined by your past. You are no longer defined by the people that you came from. You are no longer defined by your past life, your old self. You are given a new name. You are given a new inheritance. You are given a new identity. And brothers and sisters in Christ, don't lose this. Because in this book, name and heritage are central. And by God's grace, through faith, we are given Christ's name in Christ's heritage. So I am no longer Tim the DJ, Tim the liar, Tim the thief, Tim the adulterer. I am Tim the redeemed son. And if you are in Christ, that is your name. Amen. Praise God indeed. So, 
Uh, let's get into these, these uh, three little lines here. Boaz took Ruth. This is a euphemism for marriage. A husband was to go and prepare a home, and he ceremoniously uh, takes her from her home, from her parents' home, and brings him into his home and promises to provide for her. He takes Ruth from the home of her parents to his home. So he took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her. This is a euphemism for, I'll tell you when you get older. Um, And then, of course, what happens when you go into her, especially if you're newly married RBC students, um, she bears a son. (laughs) Uh, For those of you who are visiting, it is an inside joke, but trust me, it's accurate. Um, Ruth bears a son. Now, in that culture especially, a son changes everything. This means continuation for the family line. This means continuation for the, the uh, family name. This means hope for the future. That means not just this generation, but next generation will be provided for. And this anticipation has been building throughout the book. Now, we don't really understand this type of anticipation because we have, we have uh, sonograms and you can check on the baby all along. But imagine you don't know what the, uh, what the sex of the baby is, is going to be. And you don't know what your future is going to hold. You don't know if there will be a continuation of the family name. You don't know if someone will be able to inherit the land that Boaz negotiated for last week. This is the uh, equivalent of the nurse running out of the, the, the birthing room and proclaiming to the family, it's a boy. That's what's in the text. It is jumping off the page. And so Boaz did his part. Ruth does hers. But at the very center of this verse, linguistically, but also theologically, is the work of the Lord. Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave conception, and she bore a son. It is amazing enough that two people can come together and create a new life. That is incredible. But it is truly amazing because every life is a gift from the Lord. And unless the Lord grants conception, there is no life. This is why every child is a miracle. Because it is under the sovereign hand of God that the two become one and the two give birth to another one. And because of that son, another son will be born unlike any other. And you're going to get used to that phrase, and another son who came. Uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to see a lot of parallels in the ideas in which Matthew and, youth, er, and uh, Luke set out. Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Key detail here, before they came together, this child would be like any other, or would be unlike any other. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. The reminder of his ancestral line, the reminder of 
the promises, the uh, prophecies made over the child of Ruth and Boaz, made over David, over the son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hold on to verse 21. We're going to go back to that later. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So that's the first of many parallels. Now, once the child is born, the women, we're getting into verse 14 here, back in Ruth 4, the women of the city gather. Now, if you remember, the last time we saw the women of the city, they were a bit shocked. Because Naomi shows up after 10 plus years and she looks a little uh, less worth, you know, worth for wear. Uh, The uh, road miles in Moab have not been good on Naomi. Going back to chapter 1, verse 19, here's what they say. So the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And they came to Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now they are singing a different tune. The future, the horizon looks completely different for Naomi. Here's what they say. Then the women said to Naomi, imagine you're a lifelong friend. See, everything fall apart. So you go off, so you come back, hat in hand, with nothing as it should be. And then a child is born. And these women say, blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. So uh, let's go a little deeper Because these women are certainly blessing Obed, this young boy. Um, But this is way too uh, deep of language here. All this this, uh, consecration imagery. This is too much expectation for Obed. Because I don't know if you realize, but we hear nothing of Obed after this. His name appears in genealogies, and that's it. So this is a lot of hype for someone who does not deliver. So let's look a little deeper. Number one. Blessed be the Lord. Boaz is a godly man. Ruth is a godly woman. But the Lord is the hero of this story. His gracious light has shined on the people of Bethlehem. And it will shine again. It's a great lesson for us, brothers and sisters. When when we see something amazing, something miraculous, something good, even something mundane, the first thing we do is praise the Lord. That is our first response. Because there are glorious, beautiful beings who are before the throne of God. Day and night, they do nothing but bless and praise the Lord. And that worship, that blessing that is before the throne for all time, comes down to earth in time. Because they will bless the birth of of another boy in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 8.
And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel of them, angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God. And saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. The worship of heaven came down to earth because God came down to earth. Emmanuel. There is celebration every time a baby is born, but there was never a celebration like this and there will never be another one. So they bless the Lord first. And then they remind Naomi why she is blessed. Because the Lord has blessed her. It is the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. There's a kinsman. There's a son of your clan to continue the name. But I don't know if you notice this. Who has blessed you this day. Not the day of the wedding. She's not talking about, the women are not talking about Boaz. It's the day of the birth of the son. They are blessing the offspring. There is a hope, Boaz is a redeemer, but there is hope of a greater redeemer that is to come. Hope for your entire life. Hope for generations to come. You have no idea, they have no idea what they are saying. They don't realize prophetically they are speaking about a redeemer who is to come who will come from this very line. The Lord who has not left his people without a redeemer. Zechariah's prayer back in Luke chapter 1. Told you to keep your fingers there. Luke chapter 1. Um, I love Zechariah's prayer. I wanna, we're going to read it as much as we, we can. I think we did it for corporate reading a couple weeks ago. Verse 67 Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. This is before the birth of Christ. He, he knows what is coming. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. We are seeing that house being formed now in Ruth. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. That is good news. That is a gospel promise. And our God keeps his promises. And you, verse 76, child will be called the prophet of the Most High God. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Because no matter how dark the world is, our God is a light unto our feet and a lamp in our path. 
And he is not just the redeemer of Israel. He is the redeemer of all people. Here's what Paul says in Titus 2. He speaks of Christ's role as redeemer to all the nations. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He has come for this age, yet we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing in the age to come, the glory of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Our Redeemer has come and our Redeemer is coming again. And he came that we would be people of light and we would sing like we sang as children or your children may still sing this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. He came that we would be the light of the world because he, the light of the world, shines through us. This Redeemer, he would have a, uh, a name of renown. If you don't know the word renown, it means to be famous. It needs to be spoken of often. He is to be renowned in all of Israel. Now again, we know nothing of Obed. Maybe he had a good, good reputation. We don't know. But we do know that his son has come, whose name is renowned in all the earth. He is the son of God, as Paul says in Philippians 2. Uh, one of my favorite incarnation texts. Philippians 2. I want to pick up in the middle of that. He's speaking of Christ in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of the incarnation, because of his submission to the will of the Father, because of his submission to the punishment on the cross, because he was perfect in every way, because he laid down his life voluntarily, therefore, God has, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, the, the name of great renown. Jesse quoted this from Isaiah 45 earlier. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on, and under the, and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These women had no idea what they were saying. There's one whose name would be renowned above all other names. He won't just be publicly famous. He won't just be a public benefit. Now it gets personal. He shall be a restorer of your life and a nourisher of your old age. For Naomi who came back bitter and empty. Remember how she responded to the women when they said, is this Naomi? Chapter 1, verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? This little child gives so much joy and hope, a new lease on life and energy for her and her family. But there is a son who has come. 
who restores all life through his death. Those who come to him, those who he came for, he restores completely. Here's what Jesus said in John 8, 12. I'll be up on the screen. There you go. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There is something restorative about a baby. But the baby who came in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, he will not only restore the lives of his people, he will restore the entire creation that was marred at the fall. Not only is he a restorer of the life of, of, of Naomi, uh, zooming back in, he is a nourisher of old age. This in the Hebrew is literally to sustain your gray hair. Think of the comfort and the encouragement that Naomi has. You will never see a grandmother more joyful than when she is holding her grandchild. Her face lights up. Her entire countenance changes. Everything changes for Naomi in this moment. But a son has come who carries us and sustains us through all of life. And in our old age, he is still our strength. I'm reminded of this as I continue to talk to my 91-year-old grandmother who um, has some clear days and some unclear days. But what is clear every time I talk to her, she is still learning. She still loves the Lord and she must trust him now more than ever. And it is so sweet to talk to someone who has been walking with the Lord for more than seven decades and is still excited every day to talk about him and to share what she is learning. A child is nourishing Naomi in her, her, her old age, but, but we have a child who has come who is a risen Savior who nourishes us every day of our lives, especially in the old age when we have to trust in him more. And then the uh, blessing goes on, and we're not really expecting this next phrase. Why is, the, is all of um, this language of being restored and, and nourished for? There's purpose here for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. This is truly inexplicable. We spend enough time in Revelation to understand the meaning of the number seven, the number of perfection, the number of completeness. This one Moabite woman is better than a complete family, than seven sons, because of her love for her. Now, if you remember Naomi's sons... Their names are weakling and failing. You get seven more of those, uh, you, <laughs> you still got a bad hand. But she is more than seven sons? What could this mean? There's a great redemptive parallel in this for us. What you gain in the Lord is far greater than what you lose apart from the Lord. What you gain in the Lord is far greater than what you lose apart from the Lord. Let's, let us remember that. That one godly daughter and the son she bears 
is better than all the ungodly sons in the world. So I just want to encourage you. Uh, there's a lot of this going on. Um, I had already planned to talk about this. There's a lot of going on in our intercessory prayer th- this morning. For those of us who have non-believing family, for those who have, who have people who are far from the Lord, who are resistant to the gospel, look around the room. Brothers and sisters, he has given you a great family. He has given you far more in him than whatever we feel like we, we, we've lost. Jesus promises that that light will also become a sword, and it will create division within families. But that pruning, that separating, is good. It is for our, our, our purity. It doesn't mean that we don't love our family members. It doesn't mean we don't pray for them to be redeemed. But we don't long for what we have lost. We praise the Lord for what we have gained. And so I think this is good for us to kind of stop and think about for a moment. In following Christ... I know sometimes it feels like we've left everything behind. And we do. We, we leave what little we think we have, what we put value into, what we want to hold on to, but we gain so much more. And we've talked about this throughout the book, but I think it's good for us to consider again. Do you ever long for the onions and the bricks of Egypt? Do you ever look back at the time before your redemption and think, man, it was a lot easier when I got everything I thought I wanted. Now I've actually got to trust God. Now I actually have to walk in faith and not by sight. How often do you long for the, the hunger, or excuse me, the, the, um, the uh, comfort and the food of, of Moab? It's easier over there with, with, with the pagans. They've got good food. And how often for those of us who, are ser- um, who serve Christ, the things that we used to serve, how often do they rear their ugly heads and beckon us to come back? How often do they call us back with little things that are not fulfilling? And how often do we remember how much Christ has given us? Is not what Christ has given you greater than what you have lost? This is the lesson for Naomi. Because if you are in Christ, he has given you salvation. He has given you adoption and brought you into a new family. He has given you a new name. He has given you new desires. He has given you eternal inheritance, assurance of salvation. He gives good gifts now. He gives you hope and peace in every circumstance. And he gives you the promise, the guarantee of glory to come. Because a son has came to give you himself. And so also, I must say this, if you hear this list, and you don't know these things, and you think you're a Christian, you may have to examine yourself. Where is your hope? What are you trusting in? Is it your circumstances? Is it the the people around you? Is it the size of your bank account, the position of your, uh, your, your promotion? Is it how your week is going? Is it a light within yourself, or is it the light of the world who has shone upon you and calls you his own? Do you know him? Because Naomi didn't know him by name, but she knew him by heart. There is a restorative process that happens in her and a restorative process that happens in us when his light shines on us. 
And so this bitter, angry woman is now a joyful, thankful grandmother. And then the intimate detail here in verse 16. She took the child and laid him on her lap. This in the Hebrew uh, is into her bosom. She grabs this, this child and holds him close to her chest to feel his heartbeat. This grandmother who has lost so much, we get brought into this intimate moment where a son is born and now she can hold him in her hands. Remember what she said in chapter 1. I'm too old to bear you a son. And even if I could bear you a son, are you going to wait for my son to grow up, Ruth? Now a son is born. And this might be one of the most incredible things in this entire passage. Look what the women say next, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi? This child changes everything. Her son's died. And maybe it was a little conniving. Maybe it was brilliant, but her plan worked. Her son's name will live on. This is as much for her as it is for Ruth. And so we end in the book of Ruth where we begin with Naomi. Naomi has had a 180 shift in her life and in her perspective. She is now redeemed and restored. And so this little child that she holds in her lap, they name him Obed. And in a book with all kinds of uh, meaning and significance within names, we know next to nothing about the, the name Obed. We know it's derived from the word for servant, but we know nothing else. Context doesn't give us anything else. But it's because he's not to be remembered. He's important because he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. There it is. That's the big reveal. Imagine you're reading Ruth for the first time in the time of David. We don't know exactly when it was written. Or maybe shortly after the birth or the, the death of David. You know nothing else, and you get up to this point. You're like, why am I reading about this, this, this Moabite? Why am I reading about this guy, Boaz, I've never heard of? Oh, because the son would be Obed, who would have a son named Jesse, who would have a son named David. This son is leading up to something so much greater. This son will one day lead to a king. Remember, this is important because this is the time of the judges. This is when anarchy reigns in Israel. They have no leaders. And this son would also lead to another son who would be king and reign forever. That's why next week we're going to spend our entire time on the genealogy. Um, and I'll give you a kind of sneak peek, sneak peek of, of our plan. Uh, we're going to be going through the life of David in First and Second Samuel after this. And then we're going to go into Matthew, uh, beginning with Matthew's genealogy. So uh, that's a preview of weeks to come. But as we go down this genealogy, the father of Jesse, the father of David, you see in Matthew's genealogy, the father of Christ. Because a son of David has come, and he reigns now. And that son 
he is better than seven times 70 of honorable sons. He is the most worthy of all sons. We may not know Obed's name, but we know the son of David's name. We know the name Jesus, and we know what it means. It means Yahweh saves. So let's go back to Matthew one twenty one again. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Names are important. This name is the name that is above every name, the name that is of renown in all the earth. And he came to save his people from their sins. He came to be a king unlike any other. And we'll look one final time in Luke chapter 1 to learn what type of king he would become. Another prophecy given here by the angel Gabriel. Luke chapter 1 verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now, when you read through the Old Testament, I hope all of this, this imagery and anticipation of the Old Testament is helpful in reading. These details are not here by accident. He is of the house of David. And a virgin... Uh, name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Don't be afraid. Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Here's what's also implied in that name. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Ruth is a beautiful picture of light shining into darkness. The gospel truth of a son would give birth to the line of a king, who would give birth to the line of the king of all kings. Um, we read last week from Isaiah 54. I want to go back there. Isaiah 54, 4 through 8. Because it is the narrative version of this prophecy. And this narrative points us to the gospel truth of who we are in Christ. Isaiah 54, 4 through 8. Picturing Israel, people lost in their sins as a widow who has nowhere to turn. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, verse 4. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you. Like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I will gather you. 
Again, light shining into darkness. In overflowing anger for a moment, God is rightly angry at sin. I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The gospel is a time and a message of light and darkness. So as we get into our conclusion, uh, Shree and I were in St. Augustine last week, this, th- th- this past week, uh, to go see the Knights of Lights. And it is a bright city. You go there during Christmas time, there are lights everywhere. It is full of lights. And it is full of holiday cheer, whatever that means. And it is full of churches. But it is very devoid of the light of the world. There are a lot of people celebrating an idea. Um, there's a lot of interesting people there. Whenever you go out and people, and, 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 and people watch, see some interesting people. We met a very interesting person. Um, he was very excited to give us a historical tour. He was a talkative man. Um, loved the sound of his own voice. Um, and when he found out that I was a pastor, we took Dylan and, and Hannah with us. They were on their, their honeymoon. And someone desiring to be a pastor, he was really excited to talk about the uh, religious history of the city. We didn't realize he was really excited to preach to us about his own gospel. So it was an interesting ride, as you can imagine. Um, he had many interesting beliefs, to say the least. But most concerning among them was his idealistic hope of mankind. He talked glowingly about this hope of how we can heal the world. And how much hope he had for the next generation that they were going to be better than the last and they were going to be the ones that fix everything. We're living in different worlds. But his hope is a common one. It's a false gospel that says the light is already within us. All we have to do is draw that light out of ourselves and we will fix the world. Anyone ever heard this? Some of you in this room might believe that. But when we told him that the light has already come, that the light has come into the world, that the Son of God is our hope, and that we are hopeless without Jesus Christ because we have a sin problem, it was the first time he was quiet the entire trip. So we are praying that the Lord is working in the heart of of Ken and everyone else who believes that. And so I must ask you this morning, Where is your hope? Do you think that the light resides in you? Do you think you can stand before God if you even believe in God one day and say, look at the light that I have. Look what I shine. Do you think you can heal yourself or maybe even the world? Or is there a greater light that has come? that is shine into a dark world that everything else pales in comparison to. So I love the book of Ruth because it is full of restorative actions. Boaz takes a wife. Ruth bears a son. Naomi takes a child. And I love that this light that has come into the world, he doesn't just redeem our souls. He redeems our circumstances. God does not leave us where or how he found us. This book should be a great encouragement to us. Because in meeting what Ruth needed, God also met what Naomi needed. 
which was also what Israel needed, which is ultimately what the whole world needed. A perfect redeemer who saves us perfectly and completely. Because Ruth is a much bigger story than two worthy people coming together. God has a grand plan in play. And as it, it, we can't explain this, but the only way I can say it is like, we are playing kindergarten checkers, trying to hop one at a time. And God is playing infinity chess. We read this under a, a microscope and, and, and wonder, what about all these, th- these little details? How do all these things fit together? But he is sovereignly orchestrating every detail of their lives and our lives for his glory and for the good of his people. And so Ruth is a comforting book to us. Because, brothers and sisters, there is no detail of your life that he has not planned for, that he doesn't use, and that he doesn't redeem. And there is one day when he's coming back where he's going to redeem everything about this planet. The old will pass away, the new will come, where we will enjoy all the beauty of of, of creation without the sin, without the death, without the pain, without the hurt. And so finally, if the love of Ruth is better than seven sons, how much greater is the love of God for us in Jesus Christ? How much greater is it that he would send his only son to be the light of the world, to light, to shine on our dark hearts? I want to look at Colossians 1, 11 through 14. Here's what Paul says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, we have been redeemed, and we should walk in full hope and assurance of children of light. This table that we're about to approach are indeed for us who share in the inheritance of the saints of light. They are for us who know the light of the world. They are for us who, like Ruth, know we bring nothing to the table. We are not worthy to be redeemed And we have thrown ourselves upon the mercy of our Redeemer. Repented, trusted that he is good and he is mighty to save. And that we know that in Christ, he came for us. That we we might be united with him, that we might bear his name and belong to him forever. Our King of kings, our Lord of lords. The Son who came to end all sons. So I'll give you a few moments to prepare your uh, hearts and minds that go before the table, and then I'll give us our instructions.